Again, as has been our habit as we're in the review and overview of Romans, let's take a moment to consider what Paul has wrote to the church there thus far. He begins by addressing them and saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but instead is eagerly obligated to it, a gospel that is nothing less than the very power of God unto salvation the wrath of God being revealed against men and the righteousness of God revealed when he makes propitiation for them, paying their debt, literally ransoming his people back from their sins, purchasing your life and mine, the life of all the saints, with the lifeblood of Christ, so the one that is eternally just may also be the justifier of the guilty, for Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The very power of God on display, faith being credited of greater value than faith actually has, and having been justified through the gift of faith, we rejoice, literally we boast in this hope that we have from God, for we were dead, born in the image of Adam, from dust we came, and to dust we would return. But in Christ we live because in Christ we died. We are those that have a profound sense of our identity. That through the baptism of the Holy Spirit we both died with Christ and were buried with Christ. And because of that we will be risen along with Christ by the glory of the Father to walk in the newness of life. Profound understanding of a profound identity. Those that came to life from death. God calling into existence, Paul says, that which did not formerly exist. All of this by the working of nothing less than the Spirit of Jesus Christ Himself. For it certainly was not going to be by the working of men. No, men are enslaved to their own being. Paul says in Romans 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but the saints have a new being. For in chapter 8, verse 9, he continues and says, You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if the Spirit of God in fact dwells in you, we can therefore say the most outrageous of all the statements that are made in Scripture, that all things work for good. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose are you called of God do you love God because if you do friends you can say along with the Holy Spirit the Apostle Paul and millennia of fellow saints in Christ that you have never had a bad day we are called but not for any old reason we are called according to the purpose of God himself for salvation belongs to our Lord. Or as Paul says in Romans 9.16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that mercy and compassion are not opposed to the justice of God, but that mercy and compassion are part and partial to the justice of God, to the extent that if mercy and compassion is not present in Jesus Christ, then what you are hearing is not the justice of God. Our God will not be accused. He's not a tyrant. 
instead he will be glorified for both his wrath and his mercy. For concerning the glory of God and salvation, Paul's heart breaks for the lost. You see, lacking the intimacy of that salvation, they established a system of their own and they slapped a sticker on it that they called the law, and yet it was insufficient. For God's glory is not found in man's law, but instead God's glory is found in nothing less than the word of faith. It is near you, in your heart, and in your mouth. For if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 13. And knowing this absolute, knowing that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, we are bold in the manner of our evangelism. You see, we understand the difference between means and cause. We are the means, preaching is the means, evangelism is the means, but it is nothing less than Christ himself who is the cause of salvation. Being the means is plenty for men. Being the means is beautiful. As Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those that preach the good news. Is the means absolute? Will all believe? No. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing not through the word of the preacher, but through the word of Christ. You see, for us, success is defined not necessarily as people accepting the good news, though we pray with all our hearts that they do, but success is defined as the faithful proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, and we will trust God to produce the effect. What about Israel? Christ made many promises to them. What about Israel? What about Israel is this. God is faithful. He has not abandoned his people Israel, and neither will he abandon his people from among the Gentiles. Instead... Both are being worked together unto the salvation of us all. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has been grafted into the promise that was given through them. And the result is the Gentile church suffering, literally enduring to the end, will be the very thing that provokes jealousy in the Jews when Christ Jesus splits the eastern sky at his return and they gaze on him whom they have pierced so that the Lord may open a fountain of blessing, of grace, and pleas for mercy for them and give them a new heart that both Jew and Gentile together may be saved. Church, that is a bold mission statement. Everybody wants to talk about a mission statement today, man. There's your, there's your end of the age mission statement. We are the body that provokes to jealousy, the living sacrifice. You are the very miracle, Christians, that God is doing. Over the last two weeks, you've heard testimony of new saints. They're the miracle that God is doing. Sentient beings, aware, living, feeling, desiring the very things of the kingdom. This is a miracle that is infinitely greater than the splitting of seas or manna from heaven. In God's perfect design, 
Each one of these miracles is unique. We are not all the same. Instead, we've been perfectly equipped for the role that we were designed to fulfill. So go out and fulfill your role. Be the Christian that God called you to be. Oh yes, there are some absolutes. They're all modeled after the character of Christ to which we are being conformed. There are also some particulars that the Lord has set apart for individuals to fulfill. Fulfill them. Let your love be genuine without pretending, but instead agape, with great intention of the will, desire to do the best for your God, for your brother, for your sister, even for your enemy. Or as Paul says in Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Be subject to the governing authorities that God ordains as far as God will allow you to go. Know nothing except for love. For God has very real expectations for his people, both for the strong and the weak. For the strong, God expects us not to despise the weak, but instead to bring them along, that they too may become the strong. And for the weak, God expects that you do not pass judgment on the strong. For the weak are in no position to do so. But instead, understand something both strong and weak and everywhere in between. Understand that salvation is indeed nearer to us now than when we first believed. And because of that, it is time to wake from sleep, perhaps more clearly in any of our lifetimes, that if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. For we are the Lord's, and each one will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, Do not pass judgment as though we as humans are the arbiter between good and evil, but instead decide never to become a stumbling block or a hindrance to your brother, for there is very clear priority in Christian character. Indeed, for freedom Christ has set us free, and yet freedom is not the highest priority in the kingdom of God, but agape is. We have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Not out of obligation to the weak primarily, but instead out of obligation to Christ, who did the very same for us when we were weak and into whose image we are being conformed, so that the God of endurance and encouragement may grant us together to have hope and harmony with one another, that with one voice, Mount Zion, one voice, we may glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for this is the thing that Christ came to do. This is the thing that we are being conformed to, to elicit the glory of God himself, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Such is a bold and well-satisfying gospel. Paul says that he is satisfied, particularly with Rome. He trusts, he is confident that certain things are true about the church in Rome. Namely, that they are filled with goodness and knowledge and able to instruct one another. Able to set the minds of people on the things of God. And being the miracle that God is doing Rome is being properly transformed into the image of Christ. But as we saw last week, 
Christian satisfaction is not stagnation. It is not as though Rome has arrived and there's nothing left for them to do. No, we will not arrive until glory and we see him face to face, give an account of ourselves at the judgment seat of Christ and have all that was done in the flesh, the wood, the hay, the stubble burned away and leave nothing but the silver, gold, and precious stones that are the things of the new creation. And since this day is yet to come, even though Paul is satisfied in their current condition, he writes to them boldly. He writes to them boldly, not because he is dissatisfied, but because he is satisfied. And he is satisfied that they are mature enough to rightly handle the word of truth that he is giving them. And in receiving it, that they might continue to grow in sanctification. And that Paul might continue to be satisfied. For this is a group of people that Paul's heart longs for. Paul said at the very beginning that he is under obligation both to Jew and to Greek. We have seen how his heart longs, even breaks over his brothers in the flesh, the people of Israel who have largely rejected the gospel. And now we see Paul's heart for the Greek, for the Gentile as well as he longs for the church in Rome. Let's begin this morning. And I know that our core text is chapter 15, verse 22 through 33, but for context's sake, let's start with the last clause of the previous sentence in chapter 15, verse 20. Thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. And to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings." When, therefore, I have completed this and I have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. The reality is, is Paul longs for Rome. Not the imperial city with all of her marbled, gilded majesty. But instead, he says, I long for you, for the church, for his brothers and sisters in Rome, those very people that he is writing to. Paul longs for the offering of the Gentiles in Rome, those who are stuffed full of active goodness, full to completion and knowledge and able to instruct, to place the minds of themselves and others. He longs for those people. He longs for that church, for whom he is so well satisfied. Paul's desire is nothing less than the saints themselves. His heart is mimicking 
the heart of David in longing for the other people of God. David wrote in Psalm 16, verse 2 and 3, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Indeed, the cliche holds true. Birds of a feather flock together. Those who long for the Lord and have been made new in the Lord long for the fellowship of others who have been saved in the same way that they have. Paul's delight is not for the city of Rome. Instead, it is for the people of God in Rome. Paul's delight in the Roman saints is first exhibited in wanting to assist them in their common mission, secondly, to enjoy their company, and thirdly, he says, to reap a harvest. This is not the first time that Paul has mentioned this. At the very beginning of his letter in Romans chapter 1 and verses 8 through 12, Paul writes to the church there and he says, first... I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul longs to come together with them in their common mission in Christ. Yes, we are called to a particular calling. Yes, there are specifics to what Paul is doing that is different from what the church in Rome is doing and what individuals in the church in Rome are doing that are specifically different from other individuals in the church in Rome are doing, but they all serve the exact same end. They all revolve around the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because they all have this central truth at their core, Paul longs to be with them that they may have a harvest together, one with another. And yet, Paul says, this longing as deep and profound, as rooted in the cross of Christ as it actually is, this longing has been hindered. Literally in the Greek, to cut off. This desire that he has to, to go and see them, which has been around now, Paul says, for years has consistently, chronically been hindered. Normally when we think about being hindered in our Christian walk, we look at that as a negative. And yet here, it is seen as a positive. Paul is positively hindered. No tongue in cheek. His hindering is positive in both his longing and in the fact that that longing cannot be fulfilled. For the very thing he longs for is the gospel ministry amongst the Romans. But the very thing that is hindering his gospel ministry amongst the Romans is the gospel ministry among others. Gospel hindering gospel. The difference is priority in the purpose of God. 
And look, it's, this stuff is real easy when you have something that is less valuable than the gospel, hindering the gospel, that is sin. This is easy when you have the gospel that is hindering something less valuable than the gospel. That is sanctification. I would like to go to the lake this weekend, but that desire to go to the lake is being hindered because I have responsibilities in the gospel. Friends, that's sanctification. I'm going to go to the lake this weekend, and that's going to hinder the gospel. That's sin. But here we have some, something completely different. We have the only thing that is on par in the priorities of God with the gospel, and that is the gospel. And the gospel ministry in one place is hindering Paul's ability to participate in a gospel ministry that he longs for in another place. Which one wins? Why one and not the other? Because of the priority of God's purpose. The reality is that for the people of God in this age, there will always be more ministry to do than we can actually do. And therefore, our purpose must be prioritized. And I'm not just talking about prioritizing gospel preaching over fellowship or prioritizing evangelism over discipleship. I'm talking about the priority of where is the gospel ministry going to go. Gospel and gospel. Our purpose must be prioritized and not prioritized by our own longings or intentions, our own rationale or logic. But instead, as Paul demonstrated, it must be prioritized by God's intention for the king and not the subjects set the schedule of the kingdom. That's a tough thing for humans who want to schedule everything that's a tough thing for us to get our minds and particularly our hearts wrapped around and so let's look at Paul who demonstrates very well what it looks like for a man to have deep longing for multiple gospel ministries but understands that God has a particular priority at a given time for him to be participating in one of those at least directly let's take a look at how Paul manages this situation and walks well while being hindered by the very ministry that he's in. For he is a man whose ministry in the gospel is being hindered by ministry in the gospel. How do you walk well? How do you walk well in the gospel ministry when the gospel ministry is the thing that's hindering the gospel ministry? Number one, in the call of God, you have to understand that not all priorities are the same. They're not all the same. And I'm not talking about for freedom Christ sets you free, but freedom isn't the number one priority of the character of the kingdom. Love is. Now, once again, we're talking about things that are on par with each other here. But I cannot simultaneously, I mean, just a human being, can't be in two places at one time. Can't do that. Can't be in 15 places at one time. Requires wisdom and discernment. Lord, where would you have me to be? Paul doesn't just long to go to Rome. Man, we can read through the epistles. There's a lot of places that Paul longs to go. 
He's being hindered a lot by whatever ministry he's currently in. You have to understand that in the call of God, not all priority is the same. The very ministry that Paul forfeits because of God's priorities, others will embrace because of God's priorities. Man, the Lord knows what he's doing. Paul longs to do it all. Paul can't do it all. And so what he has to do is have the wisdom that God gives him as to where he's supposed to do it. Guess what? There's other guys that are longing to be in all the places Paul is longing to be too. But they can't be there either. And God in his perfect plan, in his perfect ordained sovereign plan, has a place for them to be that's not the place for Paul to be. And has a place for Paul to be that is not the place for them to be. Most specifically, we could look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verses 2 through 3, where Paul writes to the young pastor and says to Timothy, My true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul had an opportunity and a specific calling from the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel in Macedonia where it had not been preached before. Now, we're going to look at this here in a minute. And at the time this was going on, Paul was considering a lot of options, but the Lord kept closing the door to him. And then he opened a door to an option that Paul had not considered in Macedonia. But what that meant was Paul wasn't going to be able to stay in Ephesus. But in the wisdom of God, Timothy was. Now look, nobody likes to break up Montana and Rice. But sometimes that's what you do. And so Paul says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. There is work that needs to be done there, difficult work, charging certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. God's priority necessitated that Paul leave behind the Ephesian saints and leave behind the young Timothy. God's priority simultaneously necessitated that Timothy remain with the Ephesian saints and be separated from Paul. God's priority necessitated that Paul, in going to the Macedonian loss, lost, would be cut off, hindered from going to the Roman saints whom he also longed for. Such is the nature of the schedule of the kingdom that the king sets. But simply understanding that all priorities are not the same in the kingdom is not sufficient. You must also, if you're going to walk well while being hindered by the gospel, understand, second, that in the purpose of God, you should expect righteous longing to often go unfulfilled. Do not, however, expect to be disappointed. And what I mean by that is Paul had a lot of things that he longed for, a lot of places he wanted to go, and that was all righteous longing. He wanted to be there for the right reasons. Paul isn't out of line. He wants to go so that they can share together in the things of the gospel, so they can have a ministry together in preaching the gospel, and that together they might reap a harvest. Man, Paul's not out of line here. Paul's desires, his longings, are as righteous and reflective of Christ as they can possibly be as long as they submit themselves particularly to the priority of Christ for Paul. 
You have to expect righteous longing to often go unfulfilled. But don't be down about it. And this right here is where faith kicks in. This is where you got to trust that God knows what he's doing better than you know what you're doing or better than I know what I'm doing. So that when we see things that no doubt would be good and that gets unfulfilled, it's being unfulfilled because God is sending you to a purpose that he has that is more fitting for the new creation in you. Concerning purpose in this world, man intends, but God executes. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, this must have been a, this must have been a, a concept that weighed heavy on the heart of King Solomon because he speaks about it a lot. And he was a guy that had a lot of intention, and the Lord allowed to participate in a lot of execution. But there were many things in the heart of Solomon that finished unfulfilled. And Solomon says this in Proverbs 16, 9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Or again in 19.21, Many are the plans of the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. If you're going to walk well while being hindered by the gospel, you've got to understand that all priorities aren't the same. And in doing so, you've got to understand that there will be righteous priorities that go unfulfilled for you. But please don't expect to be disappointed because the priorities of God are going to be fulfilled. Number three, you must understand that saints do not always receive the longings of their heart in the manner that they intend. So you have longings that are righteous that are going to go unfulfilled because God has different priorities for you specifically, has somebody else for that. We get that. There are also the longings of your heart that are God's priority for you, that are God's priority for me, that are God's priority for Mount Zion, and yet the way that God delivers on those often comes in a way that seems to us to completely come out of left field. Completely come out of left field. I think the first time I preached this series, of, it was in about five sermons, this series of texts, I mentioned the experience that I had as a child sitting in a deer stand. I've tried to quit doing this, Wolf, but I still do it to some extent. I can't help it. You sit down in a stand, you wait for it to get daylight. Your toes are cold. This is a given. It starts getting daylight enough that you can begin to see. And you start picking out the way he's going to come in. He could come this way. Over that saddle behind this thicket around that rock. He could come this way, creep in up this little draw, probably wouldn't be able to see anything but horns right until he has to come out to leave it because he's going to have to cross that field. There's your shot. Do you ever notice that the way you expect it to go is the way that it's always going to line up the perfect shot at some point in this scenario? And it's going to be brilliant, man. They'll put you on the cover of a magazine. It never works that way. They come in behind you and are at your feet. And you're trying to figure out if you can do this and not blow your pinky toe off. They come in in a thicket so thick and stand there where the only thing you can see is the rack and don't move for an hour and then walk out the way they came in. It never seems to happen the way we think it's going to happen. 
Saints did not always receive the longings of their hearts in the manner they intended. And yet, yet, if their truest desire is set wholly upon the Lord, if what they really want is God, and what God wants, they will most certainly obtain the longing of their heart because there is one thing that God guarantees that He will give every time someone asks. And the one thing that He guarantees that He will not say no about is if you ask for Him. If the longing of your heart is truly not the manner in which this stuff is going to unfold, but the God who causes it to unfold, then their truest desire being set wholly upon the Lord, they will most certainly obtain their truest desire, even if not in the way that we plan. Or as the psalmist says in 37 and verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Because the desire of your heart that you delight in is nothing less than the Lord. It may not be the way that you plan. It may not be the way that I plan. But friends, you will not be disappointed. Or if you want somebody that can put it more eloquently than me, then Matthew Henry said it like this. God's dearest servants are not always gratified in everything that they have a mind to. Yet, all that delight in God have the desire of their heart fulfilled, though all the desires in their heart may not be humored. Friends, Paul is not paralyzed in his longing and his intention by the ordained but hidden priority of God. And there's stuff that Paul looks at and that he longs for, he wants in righteousness. He knows full well of his human limitations. He can only be at one place in a t- at a time. He knows, therefore, that a lot of those longings are going to go unfulfilled, but he doesn't necessarily know which ones. He doesn't know how it's going to unfold for the ones that the Lord is going to call him to. And yet, not knowing God's purpose, not knowing the details of what all of the rest of the steps in arriving, for instance, at Rome is going to be, doesn't mean that Paul is somehow paralyzed and can't move in this sphere of longing. He absolutely moves in it. He absolutely desires, he forecasts, he hopes in what might be set before him Friends, Christians have to understand and we have to be comfortable. Once again, this goes back to a position of faith. We have to be faith, we have to be comfortable that God is faithful, and on some things we are just not in on the loop. It's just how it goes. Man, in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 34, Paul proclaimed, considering the very mysteries of the salvation of both Jew and Gentile, while trying to work all this stuff out, comes down to his conclusion and says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Now, when you look at Romans chapter 10 and 11, Paul brings more enlightenment to the way that the Jew and the Gentile are functioning together in God's very precisely ordained design, how these two are functioning together to bring about the salvation of each other, he brings more depth and detail to that than in any other two chapters of Scripture, period. 
Is that a fair assessment? I mean, man, he takes stuff from every end and goes, woof. And then basically says, after just like blowing the place up with, with, with a sounder understanding of Jew-Gentile eschatology than we get anywhere else, he goes, most of it, I don't have a clue. And I'm comfortable with that. As a matter of fact, the fact that I don't have a clue about how all the steps to this are going to work out between the Jew and the Gentile actually doesn't cause me to have trepidation. It elicits praise. I'm not just okay with it. It's good. Faithfulness. Trusting the Lord to know what He's doing better than even what the Apostle knows. Paul's not paralyzed. You've got to be careful. You start applying human wisdom to these concepts, you'll find yourself backed up into a corner like a scared little church mouse, and the only thing you can pray is, well, Lord, we don't know, but your will be done. That's where you'll end up. And while thy will be done is as righteous and scriptural of a prayer as you can possibly pray, only praying that in timidity as though it is apart from hope and longing and expectation is as far from a scriptural prayer as you can pray. Oh, the words are right, but the heart's all wrong. He doesn't sit around paralyzed since he doesn't know as though he can only pray thy secret will be done with he, as he's stuck with no ability to move, stymied with no ability to prepare. On the contrary, he is full of hope and intention, even if that hope and intention might not come to fruition. Buddy, Jesus Christ is never going to come down on you because you hoped you were going to get to preach the gospel to someone that he had ordained for somebody else to preach the gospel to. That's never going to be a problem in the heart of Christ. Man, you can do that all day long. Feel free. Run amok, man. Go nuts. Go crazy with longing and desire. He's never going to tell you you're out of line. Now, when he shows you that that's not yours to do, but somebody else's to do, you want to dig your heels in over it, now you're in trouble and out of line. But as long as it's at the desire stage, man, I want to preach the gospel to everyone. Man, golly, last week, go around the whole world, preach to all of them. Amen, kid, go get them. Huh? Bite down, get drugged to death, die lockjaw, get it. Man, Christ is never going to come down on you for longing for righteous things that he hasn't ordained for you. Man, long all day long. Don't be paralyzed. Ask the Lord. You just got to be okay with it if he says no. You just have to be okay with it if the way that he says yes is not the way that you expected him to say yes. This is what we call life between hoping and knowing. And guys, this is where a whole bunch of life exists is between hoping and knowing. Look what Paul says, verse 24. Chapter 15, verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a little while. Here's what Paul hopes for. Paul hopes that he's going to see them in passing on his way to Spain. 
to be helped by them on his journey, but not before he's had the chance to do the things he talked about in chapter 1. That he's longed to come to them, man. That, 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 that they can be mutually encouraged together. They can have a harvest together, both among the unsaved and the saved. And they can preach the gospel and see evangelism and preach the gospel and, and see discipleship. And then they'll help him on his way in their mutual ministry of the gospel. This is what Paul hopes for. Now look, this is not just some empty wish. This is not a pipe dream. We've looked at this before as we move through Romans. This is the hope that is associated with the gospel. So this is more than just, oh yeah, I hope we can. No, he, this is hope with intention. As a matter of fact, the Greek would define as anticipatory hope, desire with the full expectancy of receiving that which is desired. So this isn't just Paul giving the throwaway. You know how you do. When somebody says, oh man, we ought to get together and do X sometime. I hope we can which maybe it's a nice thing to say instead of going, dude, I'm so busy, it's probably not happening, right? You know, I hope we can. Basically what you're saying is that would be nice. That is not what Paul's saying. Paul is not just saying it would be nice that I would get to come see you on my way to Spain and we could hang out and be mutually encouraged and then you could help me on my way. No, Paul is hopeful with expectation. But there's something that Paul has that is more powerful than that. Because while Paul hopes with expectation that it'll go this way, it ain't going that way. There's something that's more powerful than hope with expectation. Now Paul's operating in hope with expectation. He's not paralyzed. He's making plans. But there's something more certain than that. And it's knowing. And the knowing is verse 29. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now, when we talk about knowledge here at Mount Zion, we talk about gnosko a lot. This is the knowledge of God that comes from the heart. It is an intimate knowledge, a knowledge that he has of his people that is the very thing that is the driver of predestination, Romans chapter 8. That is not the knowledge that's being spoken of here. The knowledge that is being spoken of here is a different form of knowledge. It's not intimate knowledge. Instead, it means to know intuitively through reflection. So based off of previous information that I have that I can reflect upon, then there is intuitive knowledge, things that I understand out of reflecting on previous truth. And so the fact is is that there, there are certain things that Paul knows for concrete certain, and the reason he knows them is because God told him so. And these are things that are not left up for debate. These are things that aren't going to work out any old way they please. These are concrete realities. Things like Acts chapter 9, verse 15 through 16, where the Lord said to Ananias about Paul, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul knows because God told him that he was going to take the gospel before Israel. He was going to take the gospel before Gentiles. He was going to take the gospel before kings. And then in doing so, he was going to suffer. Paul knows that. He can reflect on it. 
As Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So Paul knows from the Holy Spirit that even though he will be shown how much he must suffer to take the gospel before both Jew and Gentile and kings, he knows that it's good that he does so. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul knows that God has a very particular set of things that He has prioritized for the new creation that is the Apostle Paul. And so he reflects on those things. He reflects on those things with the new creation, with the Spirit, with the mind of Christ. And out of them, he knows something intuitively. This is the Spirit speaking to him. The Spirit speaks to his heart and to his mind, reflecting on the things that he has already told him. And Paul says this, I know that when I come to you, I hope, I hope it looks like this. I hope with expectation. When I look at the scenario... I genuinely think this is the way it's going to shake down. I think what it's going to look like is that when I'm done in Jerusalem, then I'm going to come to you as I'm going to Spain, and I'm going to stay with you for a while, and we're going to reap a harvest, we're going to have great fellowship, we'll encourage one another, and then you're going to help me and send me on my way as I go to minister in Spain. I have a legitimate expectation that that's the way it's going to be, but here's what I know is going to happen. That when I come, However I come, it will be in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Paul knows when he comes to them, he will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ, lest he not come to them at all. And yet he is ignorant. There is much he does not know. He hopes what it will look like, but he doesn't know what it will look like. And friends, by the time he knows, well... You will find Paul, as we said, being comfortable with unfulfilled expectations. He knows what he hopes it will look like, Spain and the enjoyment of their company, but it won't look the way Paul hopes. Yet in knowing the goodness of God, while being ignorant of the specific priorities of God's purpose, Paul is not paralyzed in hope. Neither is he rigid in his expectation. You know what the application for that is? That means that in the things that you righteously long for in the kingdom of God, man, hope in those things, have expectation for those things. Don't be paralyzed just because God hasn't revealed his will to you in its specifics yet. And then, when he does, if it doesn't fit, and it will almost never, it won't ever fit exactly what you expected, because the mind of a man is less than the mind of God. And when it doesn't fit those expectations, joyfully abandon them and cling to the revealed will of a sovereign and good God. 
Walking well when hindered by the gospel, number four, do not be rigid in the expectation of your hope. Just because it would be good or righteous fulfillment of the gospel's purpose for any particular thing to go down a certain way does not mean that that's the way that God intends it to go. Some things do not go the way you expect. Some things don't go the way you hope. And we would all do well to caution ourselves here for the fact of the matter is we can and often do get it wrong, but God can't and never does. He always gets it right. You know, Paul had been crossed up in his expectations before. This isn't the first time. This wasn't the first time that Paul was hoping for something with expectation that it didn't come to fruition. We see it also happen in Acts chapter 16 in verses 6 through 10. I know we're running on time here, but I think, um, I think it's worth looking at. In Acts chapter 16 in verse 6, and everybody focuses here on the Macedonian call, and they should, but I think that we need to consider the context of what's happening. It says, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now that's a statement you don't expect to come across, right? Now here's Paul. He's hoping with great expectation to be able to speak the gospel in Asia. And the Lord says, that's a good thing to hope for. You did well in hoping for that. Now I forbid you to do it. Okay, don't be rigid in your expectations. And when he had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow it. Okay, we're not rigid in our expectation. Let's do it over here. Not allowed. Okay, so passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. Guess what? No luck there either. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, Here you've got not just an apostle, but the apostle to the Gentiles. Like the guy. It's not my estimation, that's scripture's estimation. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the dude. And he is smack dab in the middle of the most Gentile place in the world that you can be in that day. I mean, there's just, you can't sling a dead cat and not hit a Gentile. Because if there were very many Jews around, there wouldn't be any dead cats. See? <laughs> yeah, you may be the only one. Okay. Huh? I mean, there are Gentiles everywhere. And they say, okay, apostle to the Gentiles, what's the play? Man, it's over, it's over here. <laughs> what's over here? What's over here? <clears throat> or are you the apostle to the Gentiles or not? Yes. And God is the God of the Gentiles. 
and of me and of you. And the king, the king alone sets the schedule of the kingdom. So where you're going is Macedonia. And you know what they said? Sweet. They understood that God's priorities aren't all the same. They understood that there would be righteous longing in them that would go unfulfilled. They understood that as it was being fulfilled, they would not be disappointed. But even then, it might not go according to the expectations that they had. But they would not be rigid in that. Instead, they would embrace what God laid before them moment to moment. Man, Paul had been crossed up in his expectations before. Considering going to Jerusalem and Rome, he was crossed up in his expectations again. And it was absolutely righteous because when the word of the Lord came, he shifted gears in a moment. There were things he hoped for, but there were things he knew. What he knew took priority. That he would come to them. And in whatever manner he came, whether it was through Spain or whether it was through chains and shipwreck, floggings and the threat of death, then when he came, he would come in the fullness of the blessing of Jesus Christ. Friends, the requirement for hope without rigidity and the priorities of God is a heart that desires not only God's things, but to arrive at those things in God's way and in God's time. And so our conclusion this morning is this. God's priorities are not the same for all people. In the purpose of God, expect righteous desire to often go unfulfilled. Do not let your hope and expectation be paralyzed by the unrevealed priorities of God. And do not be rigid in that hope and expectation in light of God's priorities when he does reveal them. But instead, instead, desire God's things, God's way, and in God's time. And when you come, you will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And until then, strive along with your fellow saints to see it through to God's good end. For this is how Paul finishes in chapter 15 in verse 30, where he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we revel in the fact that you have a purpose and a plan that is beyond us. Lord, we praise and worship for the fact that you have seen fit to include us in it. Lord, I pray that you would make us hopeful in our desire, that we would long for the things that you long for, Lord, and that you would make us joyful in the revealed purpose of your will, even when it's not what we expect, even when, when the answer is no, Lord, knowing full well that you and you alone know what is truly good for your people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.